What's going on, everyone? Welcome to my brand new true crime podcast, Crime Ghoul, where I'm your host, Brittany. Thank you so, so much for joining me. Welcome to episode one, Captive in the Leaves. If you know me, you know how much I love true crime and how it just surrounds most of my world and most of what I talk about. If you don't know me, well, now you know a little bit about me. Your discretion's heavily advised as I am going to be discussing sexual assault and the murder of an adult, minors, both. So if that causes any discomfort at all, you have been warned. If that's not something you want to hear about, I totally understand. But if you're ready to get started with episode one, definitely get yourself settled in, brew yourself a cup of coffee, pour yourself a glass of wine, or perhaps take a shot of whiskey, because this story is not for the faint of heart. Thanks for joining me. Picture this. It's an autumn day. Leaves are crushing on the ground. A chilly bite is in the air. Your skin is begging for a cozy sweater. It's November 10, 2010 in Mount Vernon, Ohio, Apple Valley. Tina Herman lived in her home with her boyfriend, Greg, daughter, Sarah, and her son, Cody. Unfortunately, Sarah and Greg had just called it quits. Tina was previously married to her ex-husband, Larry Maynard, who was also the father of her two children. Her marriage had ended, and now her long-term relationship had come to a similar conclusion. But, you know, that was okay. Tina had plans for herself and her kids. Perhaps a new apartment or home was just the fresh start that they needed. It was time for Tina to look for just the right place, and that's what she planned to do that afternoon. Her best friend Stephanie Sprang lived two houses down with her children and boyfriend. That afternoon, Stephanie was to accompany Tina on her search for the perfect apartment. That is, whatever apartment would suit her and her kids. But as fate would have it, there were terrifying twists waiting to interfere with Tina's plans. But before the darkness settled in on her world, her children Sarah and Cody would board their school bus and have a normal school day. Tina went grocery shopping and possibly to the tanning salon, we're not totally sure. But later she would meet up with Stephanie. It was noon when Tina arrived home with her groceries. However, she was not alone. Someone else, someone who did not belong, was also inside of her home. Before Tina could put her groceries or even mutter a scream, a man came charging at her from the hallway. The man was tall, he was toned, and he was really angry. Little Tina never stood a chance for what was coming. She ended up in her bedroom, and this is the last room of her home that she would ever see. The man had a blackjack in his hand, and he fiercely struck her in the head. For those of you who don't know what a blackjack is, that's all right. I actually had to Google it myself because I had no idea, but I guess it could best be described as a club or something you would hit somebody in the head, you know, with something, something heavy and hard that would potentially really hurt them or knock them out. But later we would find out that the man was attempting to knock her out. So, you know, he could leave the house, but unfortunately that's just not the way things turned out. And once again, before I continue the story, please understand that listener discretion is advised um, for the rest of the story, actually. When the man realized that he failed to knock the woman out, he reached for his hunting knife and he viciously stabbed Tina to death. As this occurred, a shocked and terrified woman screamed in the bedroom doorway. The woman was Tina's best friend, Stephanie. She had just gotten to the house to meet Tina for apartment hunting. The man sprung up and chased Stephanie. She ran into Sarah's room and tried to shut the door. But like Tina, she would not evade this encounter. She actually met a very similar fate and she was stabbed viciously. The man used so much force when stabbing Stephanie that she died almost instantly. 
To be sure, Tina was dead as well. The man actually returned to her bedroom, and in a rage, he stabbed her more times than necessary to kill her. He stabbed her over and over again. In doing so, he punctured Tina's lungs and other vital organs. He finally finished with a long, tearing thrust to her midsection. He savagely continued to stab her after that. The nauseating scene was just absolute overkill. I'm sure at this point you're all wondering, who is this man, and why has he committed such an atrocious crime? But to continue the second half of the story, you need to know his name. You need to know his part. Not because he deserves it, but because you will not truly understand the story, nor have a conception of just how bizarre and evil this crime truly was. His name? His name is Matthew Hoffman. We must rewind the story. We will take it back to roughly nine years prior. Matthew had always lived with his mother in Ohio. Little is known about his actual childhood, but a while after graduating high school, Matthew went off on his own to Colorado. Here he became a plumber. He had been working on some condominiums. While fixing one condo's plumbing system, Matthew did something really strange. He was stealing expensive belongings from the condos. He was also living in one of them. While the owner was on vacation, Matthew would cook himself meals and use the man's jacuzzi. He had stolen quite a lot. He was also stealing large signs from around town. One night, Matthew had thought about his theft. He realized that his fingerprints were going to be all over that man's condo. He came to the conclusion that it would probably be best for him to burn down the condos in order to cover his tracks. He had no regard for the other inhabitants of these condominiums. Later, he would tell authorities that he figured the fire alarms would wake them up and that the insurance company would take care of it. Obviously, it's much more complicated than this, and many residents suffered the consequences of Matthew's actions, but he didn't seem to care. Matthew had used 10 gallons of gasoline to burn the place down. He stole a resident's car and fled the scene. He would end up telling authorities that he was just borrowing it. He headed back to his hometown in Ohio. But police quickly tracked him down. They got a hold of him by phone. They gave him a certain amount of time to turn himself in, and he was going to be charged for arson and theft. Matthew would serve his time, and on a reduced sentence, he would get out of prison within eight years. He would write letters to the judge who sentenced him and explain how over the years he recognized the destruction that he had caused, and he felt so sorry for what he did to so many innocent residents. He explained that he had been ready to become a useful citizen to society again. Unfortunately, the judge would deem him ready to return to society. I often wonder what would have happened had he served his whole entire sentence. Where would this story be and would it have ever happened? Now that you're up to speed, I can bring you back to 2010, just before Hoffman became a murderer. Matthew purchased a home in Mount Vernon just 10 miles away from Tina Herman. He had a girlfriend who lived with him. Her son also resided with them. And for privacy reasons, I'm not going to mention the girlfriend nor her son's name. But for a while, things between them were okay. Matthew had a job as a tree trimmer, and he had good relations with his neighbors. The children often played together, and he would climb trees with them. Make sure you take note of his love for trees here, as it's definitely going to become important later. During the summer of 2010, Matthew became moody and irritable. He began to socially withdraw, and his dogs went missing. Concerned neighbors would ask him, what happened to your dogs? And he basically shrugged it off and said, I don't really know. And I'm not sure about you guys listening, but if my dog all of a sudden up and vanished, I'd be going berserk and I'd be turning my whole entire town inside out. So the fact that he wasn't acting that way should have alarmed anyone and everyone. Hoffman started acting completely bizarre. He would set up squirrel traps and after he would catch one, 
he would butcher it and eat it. That's right. He fucking ate squirrels. And if you don't think that's weird, just wait, because it's going to get a whole lot stranger. His girlfriend was obviously upset because Hoffman was eating squirrels, and he also started to barbecue them in their backyard. And I'm sure that was obviously embarrassing to her because the neighbors started to notice. And once the neighbors noticed the horrors of what was happening to the neighborhood squirrels, they no longer allowed their children to socialize with Hoffman, his girlfriend, or her son. I absolutely can't blame them. So quickly, Matthew's girlfriend became reserved. She stopped speaking with the neighbors. She went from being a social member of that neighborhood to absolutely silent, and that's goddamn sad. It's not at all fair what this woman had to go through. And it's not fair what her son had to see or go through. Hoffman would spend a little too much time in a hammock he hung outside. He lost his job, and they started to struggle for money. Matthew's girlfriend decided to pick everything up and leave with her son. One day she returned to Matthew's home so she could pick up some of her belongings when they both got into a huge argument. She said that the altercation lasted about two minutes. After that, she went to the police and she, for some reason, decided not to press charges against him. And now I have no idea what I would do in the situation. I have no idea what she was feeling or going through, but I just wish she would have pressed charges. If she had, he might have been locked up again and at least he would have been off the streets. But unfortunately, she didn't do that, and it's absolutely not her fault. She had no idea what monster was really to come. And from here on out, Matthew's story gets stranger and scarier. Once the girlfriend moved out, Matthew began climbing trees daily. He would stay perched in them for hours, just watching the neighbors and watching his community. He was like some creepy little bird. And as winter approached, he purposely had his electricity shut off. The neighbors knew this was odd because he loved computers and he had talked about him a lot when he was social and before he had these weird episodes. They knew he valued his electricity, so why have it turned off? But I mean, I guess it could have been due to funds. He lost his job. I'm not really sure, but that's kind of what happened. And also, by November 2010, Hoffman turned 30. So now you, you know a little more context about Matthew Hoffman. So let me bring you back to our story. We are back to the present. We are right back to the crime scene that Hoffman had just created. At this point, I'm sure you're wondering where the connection is made between Hoffman and Tina Herman. It's really quite simple, but we don't know how true it is. So just take a listen. Matthew noticed Tina Herman's house due to the garage door being ajar. It was always left slightly open, or at least... It was open when Matthew would see it. Hoffman would claim that he wasn't interested in anyone living inside the house, but he was interested in taking whatever valuables he could find inside of the home. So when Hoffman took notice that this house had their garage door slightly ajar, he took this as a welcome, come on in. He also recognized that Tina's neighbors were spread apart and across the street there was a large patch of woods. This made it easy to slip in and steal valuables to make money off of. Hoffman decided that he was going to enter this house, and nothing was going to stop him. He got a sick thrill from being in, quote-unquote, normal homes. While the residents were away, he thought that this was just great fun, I guess. I, I'm not really sure, but honestly, this was enough to send chills down my spine. Because sometimes, like, from reading this story and other stories, I find myself sitting at work at my desk and just being like, you know, my house is empty right now, but imagine somebody just entered, somebody just came in and you know, plop their ass down on my couch and hung out and ate some Cheetos and watched some TV. Like, I don't know. That just, it really freaks me out. 
So I couldn't imagine, I just couldn't imagine something like that happening, but it's, it's enough to send chills down my spine. Matthew had a plan to get inside of this house. He was determined to get inside of this house. So on November 10, 2010, he left his car at the Gap Trail parking lot. This was just a few miles away from Tina Herman's home. So from this parking lot, he made his way on foot. He brought food, water, and a sleeping bag with him. He planned to stake out the home from within the woods. Now, I don't know about all of you, but being watched is one of my worst fears. I... This part really just makes me think back to the movie Scream when Drew Barrymore's character receives a phone call from the infamous ghost face and, you know, they're talking for a while and it starts to get really serious, like not in a good way, like intense. And he basically says, like, I can see you, like, I'm at your house and everything. And she starts to get spooked when she realizes that he's not joking around. And she says, you know, my boyfriend's on his way home, so you better watch out. But he knows that's absolutely not true and that he has full reign over what's to come. Or it reminds me of when a stranger calls and, you know, it's the babysitter who's getting the calls from someone weird, someone just breathing heavy and like taunting her all night. And she calls the cops, lets them know, and the cops call them, call her back. And they're like, we trace the calls and they're coming from inside of the house. And she realizes that that whole night she's being watched. That's just disturbing, disturbing to say the least. It's just a predator stalking its prey, just getting ready to do what it wants to do with it. And this is exactly what was happening. He was sitting in the woods, just getting ready to take over that home when nobody was there. So soon Matthew fell asleep in the woods, and he was eventually awakened by the sound of Greg's car pulling out of the driveway. Greg worked at a Target warehouse, so he set off to work very early in the morning. Later that day, he had plans to go to his friend's house. He was going to stay overnight, and the next day they were going to go golfing. Greg would not be home for two days, and he was bickering with Tina on account of their failed relationship. So when he didn't, when he didn't hear from Tina, he didn't really think it was odd because they were bickering, and you know he just was not expecting to speak to her. Like he, he was mad at her, she was mad at him. The relationship was over. He was going to blow off steam with his buddy and play golf. So he just didn't think it was weird when he didn't end up hearing from Tina. So once the car pulled away that morning, Hoffman fell back to sleep. And when I say this morning, it was like early in the morning. I think Greg would leave work around 3 or 4 a.m. But later on, the second vehicle left the house, and that was Tina's pickup truck. That was around 9 a.m., I believe. And by that time, the two kids were on the bus, and Tina was on her way to run her errands. So at this point, when Matthew realized that the pickup was gone, Greg, well, he didn't know who Greg was at this point, but, you know, both cars are gone from the residence. It's go time. He's ready to carry out what he set out to do. Now that you know how and why Hoffman targeted the Herman residence, we can talk about what he planned to do with the women he just massacred and how yet again his plans were about to go to shit. So, you know, this guy allegedly went in there planning to steal things to profit from it and to get a thrill out of being in normal folks homes when they're not there but we really don't know the how true this is you know as far as we know Matthew didn't murder anybody he was only charged for arson and theft that one time we don't really know anything about him murdering anyone so I mean I guess we could take it with a grain of salt that he was telling the truth that he really didn't go there planning to kill anybody just to steal from them but as we know, he brutally just murdered Tina and Stephanie. 
And now he wanted to be sure that they were dead. So when he checked on them and made sure, he decided to drag their bodies to the bathroom. And he left streaks of blood all over the floor. He planned to dismember... I mean, excuse me, he planned to quote-unquote process them. Later, when he would speak to authorities, he wouldn't use the word dismember. He called it processes. Ooh, processes. Processing. As in, like, meat, like a meat factory processing. And I guess this is his way of dis- dissociating from what he actually did or mitigating the severity of his crime. Perhaps it made him feel better, but... Regardless, I hope he never feels better ever again after the shit he did. Matthew's knife would not cut through the bone, so he had to disarticulate the women's bodies at their joints. And obviously we know from his hunting and killing squirrels, he was probably skilled at this. So the blood pooled up in the bathtub and it was a scene straight from a horror film, the stuff nightmares are made of. And using plastic garbage bags that he found in the kitchen, he began to bag the disarticulated body parts. The family dog wouldn't stop barking, so of course he had to kill the dog, too. And just fuck you, man. You kill a dog, like, it's it's game over. Like, we just don't deserve dogs as as it is. And this guy's just really on my shit list. So Hoffman found motor oil in the house and poured it on the largest bloodstains. He planned to burn the whole house down to hide the evidence. And his logic told him that even if the whole house failed to burn to ash, at least the most incriminating evidence would be gone. Just like the crime he had committed at the condos, he had stayed in an isolated home that he that did not belong to him. He planned to steal valuables, and now he planned to burn this place down too. The only difference? Now he's a murderer. Matthew would recount to authorities that he never knew anyone in the house, and that he had only planned to steal valuables. He never planned on killing anyone. He would tell officers that he panicked, and it resulted in this monstrous disaster. Tina and Stephanie had interfered with Hoffman's plans. He improved, and now he had to plan to rid of everything. But things were about to get even messier and darker. Matthew was in the bathroom when he heard, Mom? The children had come home. Sarah and Cody rode the bus home that day like any other day. Little did they know that they were about to get greeted by a monster. Once they walked through the door, things seemed off kilter. Their mom had always greeted them when they got home, but today was different. They saw grocery bags on the floor and a small amount of blood in their mom's pristine home. They knew something was chillingly wrong. They called for their mom and out came a large man rushing their way. Sarah managed to dart and slip past the stranger. Cody was not so lucky. Cody ran from the front door and in an instant his life was unapologetically taken. Hoffman had stabbed his knife directly into the back of Cody's head. He fell to the floor. Matthew's attention immediately jumped back to the girl. He busted into her room as she was trying to dial 911 on her cell phone. He raised his knife, and for reasons unknown to even himself, he was unable to kill Sarah Maynard. Instead, he grabbed her, and during the struggle, he nicked her finger with his knife. He then sliced the electrical wiring from her bedroom fan. Using this, he bound her hands together. And using random material that he found around her room, he gagged her. Hoffman carried her into the basement, and he found a sled and cut the string off and bound her legs together. He then put a pillowcase over her head and brought her back upstairs. He put her down on the kitchen floor and left her there. Hoffman returned to the bathroom to finish carrying out the work he had in front of him. And Sarah, sitting on the cold kitchen floor, wondered apprehensively what happened to her brother and her mom. 
Thoughts were rushing through her head. Dark thoughts. Like, when he returns, is he going to kill me? Sarah could hear weird noises coming from the bathroom. The sink was running, the toilet flushing every so often, and this weird man could be heard walking around and going through their cabinets. Sarah began contemplating how she was going to survive. She knew she must survive. The man finally returned after a long time. He told her not to struggle. He also told her not to scream or he would kill her. He picked her up and eventually put her down in a car. It wasn't long before she was able to realize that she was in her neighbor Stephanie Sprang's Jeep. But what was Stephanie's car doing here? Was she taken by this man too? Her Jeep was in their garage, so she must have been with her mom. The thoughts were flooding. The man got into the Jeep and backed out of the driveway. He drove for a few minutes. He stopped the car and told her he would be watching her and not to move. Sarah heard him walk away. Wiggling her neck and arms, she was able to get the pillowcase off of her face. She could at least see a little and was able to see that they were parked at a local baseball field where Cody used to play ball. She also noticed that there were a lot of trash bags around her. Little did she know that they were filled with dismembered body parts of her beloved family, family friend, and her dog. Matthew returned and he yelled at her and pulled the pillowcase back over her head. He told her if she tried that again, he would kill her. Sarah decided not to take any more chances. She needed to stay alive. Hoffman left again, and he did not return for more than an hour. Sarah was cold and hungry, and these aches and pains would last her days. She wanted to know who this man was and what happened to her family. In the gap of time that Matthew had left Sarah, he had been on his own mission. He left the girl in the car with all of the trash bags. He parked her in the back of a baseball field parking lot, and by this time it was late and dark, so no one would be driving by. Matthew had to walk back to the Gap Trail parking lot to retrieve his silver Toyota Yaris. He drove his Toyota back to the Jeep. Once he got back, he moved Sarah into his car and drove to his house, leaving the Jeep in this parking lot. When they arrived, he carried her inside. He placed her on a hard floor and removed her blindfold. There were bizarre drawings all over the walls. He had placed her in his bathroom. The walls were white. The paintings were black. There were figures of people and animals jumbled together. One of the most bizarre drawings was a middle-aged balding man, and coming directly out of his mouth was a legitimate bathroom faucet. Matthew decided to duct tape Sarah, and he tied her up. Tied her up better than she already was, and he left her lying on the floor. If you guys are interested at all at seeing the weird pictures that were painted or drawn on Matthew's walls, definitely check out my Instagram as I've posted a bunch of pictures related to this case on there. My Instagram is crimeghoul underscore. All right, moving forward. Matthew had to stop at Walmart because he needed to buy a tarp and large garbage bags to carry out the rest of what he needed to do. It was midnight by the time he got to Walmart. He picked up a turkey sandwich along the way and a Halloween t-shirt that was on sale for $1. Nice to see where his priorities are. He was composed and any average shopper would think he was just your everyday Joe. His, his disregard for what he did was apparent as soon as he bought a random t-shirt. Like, really? You just murdered three people and a precious dog, so in my opinion, he's truly the epitome of garbage. By 12.30, Hoffman made it to a canoe launch parking lot. He left his Toyota there and walked to the red Jeep parked at the ball field. Hoffman returned to the Jeep with the body-filled trash bags. He brought along his tree trimming equipment and knew just the place to dispose of the bodies. After he had taken care of the bodies, he returned to Tina's home. 
He left the tarp and left the leftover garbage bags inside of her garage. He took empty gas cans and planned to fill them. He put the cans in Tina's pickup truck and he drove that. Well, he attempted to drive it. He barely made it down the road. The car was jerking and bumping all over, so he had to leave it in a parking lot. So he abandoned the car near an environmental center. From this lot, he walked all the way back to his Toyota that he left at the canoe launch site. Instead of returning to Tina's house to burn it down and to finish with what he started, he tiredly drove home. He checked to make sure the girl was still tied up, and she was, so he went to sleep. Trouble began to brew in Apple Valley on November 10th. When Tina didn't show up to her shift at Dairy Queen, her best friend at work, Valerie, who was also Tina's boss, began to get extremely nervous. Tina was responsible, reliable, and always punctual. This no-show was way out of character for Tina. Valerie phoned the sheriff's department and asked them to do a welfare check. So if any of you have a work best friend, I know I do, I can only imagine the fear going through Valerie's mind at this point. I can immediately put myself in her shoes. If my best friend at work didn't show up or call me or text me to say, hey, I'm not coming in, I would start to worry instantly. That night by 8 p.m., an officer drove by Tina's home. The lights were off and no vehicles were in the driveway. Nothing seemed amiss. The officer rang the doorbell and no one answered. Little did the officer know that he just missed a very disturbed man leaving with cut-up bodies and a terrified 13-year-old girl. By 11 p.m., this officer was still on patrol, and for some reason, he decided to do another check on Tina's home. He drove back. This time the house lights were on and a blue Ford pickup truck was parked in the driveway. All seemed fine, so he continued on his way. If only he had gone up to the door, maybe, just maybe, he would have encountered Hoffman and things would have panned out very differently. But as for the missing Stephanie Sprang, no one reported her missing. Her family knew that she planned to spend the day with Tina, and it wasn't out of the ordinary for her to hang out with Tina for an extended period of time and for them not to hear from her. Back at the home of Matthew Hoffman, Sarah Maynard was in and out of sleep. Exhausted, cold, tired, and sick of the hard floor, she lost track of time. Matthew eventually returned, and Sarah decided that the best way to survive would be to befriend this man. She attempted to make small talk, and she asked about the drawings on the walls. He explained them, but none of it made sense to Sarah. She couldn't even remember what he said, but she knew it made absolutely no sense. Hoffman picked up Sarah and he moved her to his basement. She was stunned by the house. There were bags upon bags of leaves everywhere. There were also loose leaves covering the floors. She asked why they were there, and Matthew said that it was for insulation purposes. Sarah decided to ask him more questions. She asked if he had ever broken into their home before, and he said no. She asked if he killed her mom and brother, and he said no. She asked if he had killed the dog, and he told her he left the front door open, and he just let the dog run away. He was a liar, and I suppose he lied to keep her calm. Plus, how does one really explain that they slaughtered someone's mom, brother, friend, and their dog? I guess you just don't. Sarah asked for food, and Hoffman offered to cook her, you guessed it, a squirrel. And of course, she immediately said no. He then gave her a bowl of cereal and milk, and the milk was chunky and expired. Sarah knew she needed to eat to stay alive. She needed all the strength she could muster, so she shoved it down and did everything in her power not to throw up. The next day came very slowly for Sarah, but I'm sure it came all too quickly for Matthew. 
It was November 11th, and Tina's manager, Valerie, was growing more and more terrified for her friend. In interviews, she explained that she knew deep down something terrible had happened to Tina. Valerie phoned the sheriff's office once again. The sheriff learned that Sarah and Cody Maynard had both been absent from school that day. Valerie decided to take matters into her own hands. She decided to go to Tina's home. Valerie began to panic even more when she learned Stephanie had been missing as well. Stephanie's boyfriend met up with Valerie, and together they agreed to check out Tina's home. Valerie entered from the back door, which happened to be unlocked, which was very odd. What she walked into would leave an everlasting scar in her mind. There was blood everywhere. She saw the blood stains dragged across the floor and a bathtub stained with blood. Frantically, she ran out of the house and immediately dialed the sheriff's department. Tina's ex-boyfriend Greg returned home when he heard that there had been police activity circulating his and Tina's home. Both Greg and Stephanie's boyfriend had been questioned. It was clear that they had not been involved. They also got in touch with Larry Maynard, and if you remember, this is Tina's ex-husband and the father of Sarah and Cody. He came to Mount Vernon immediately. He too was cleared. He started up a rally of volunteers to search for Tina, Sarah, Cody, and Stephanie. In the meantime, the police obtained a warrant and began to deep dive into investigating Tina's home. While this was going on, an officer on patrol noticed an abandoned pickup truck in a parking lot near a prominent school. The officer thought it was odd for a car to be parked in a school's empty lot. As he continued to drive down the road, he encountered a man parked in a silver Toyota Yaris. He had been parked in a canoe launch center parking lot. The officer stopped by and asked for identification. The license read Matthew Hoffman. He asked Hoffman what he had been doing there, and he stated that he was waiting for his girlfriend, Sarah, to get off of work. Yup, that's right. Hoffman stated that he had been waiting for his girlfriend named Sarah. He couldn't even think of a name other than that of a missing girl. Lucky for him, this patrol officer thought nothing of the name Sarah. At least not yet. The officer told Matthew to carry on and that the park closed at sunset. Matthew said okay and he left. Once again, Matthew's plan had been ruined. He was making his way back to the gas cans located in the abandoned pickup truck in the school parking lot. He returned home to plan his next move. He started to think about the belongings he had left in the woods. He was now worried that police may come across his belongings when they realized the family had been missing. He decided to trek back to the woods to retrieve his items. Back at the Herman residence, police came across a footprint in the blood-mixed gasoline on the garage floor. They were able to match the size of the print to one of 13-year-old Sarah's shoes. At this moment, they knew at least one of these missing people were alive. They identified the assailant's footprint, and they knew he would be tall in stature. Matthew made his long trek back to the woods, across from the Herman home. He drove his car a bit of the way and parked it. He rode his bike another chunk of the way and hit it. Then he proceeded to walk the rest of the way. I guess he figured that this was the best way to ensure that his car would not be linked back to him. Traveling back this way took a very long time. He arrived back to the woods in the late hours of the night. Once he got to the woods, he retrieved his belongings, a baseball cap and a knife. He could see the police activity happening inside and around the house. He got a sick high from this. It excited him. He could see the police and they had no idea that right across the way, watching from the dark, was their perpetrator. He took his things and he left. 
While the police were searching Tina Herman's home, they came across something odd, a Walmart bag. Inside the bag was a tarp and garbage bags. Officers went to the local Walmart to request information and surveillance footage. Hoffman returned home, and he knew he could finally take time to be with the girl. These next few days are blurry and uncertain. Both Sarah and Matthew's recount of what happened differed, and unfortunately, the only two people who knew exactly what went on in that house are them. What we do know is that Hoffman made Sarah do something sexual. As she puts it, he made her do something no 13-year-old girl should ever have to do. In interviews and documentaries regarding this case, she was asked if she was sexually assaulted. She said yes, but she would not explain the details. The girl's life had been changed forever by this man. Sarah explained him to be the closest thing to the devil that she'd ever seen. If you check out my Instagram, I've posted pictures of Hoffman, and you'll see the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Yes, if you're a horror movie fan, I most definitely just referenced Halloween. Dr. Loomis, specifically from Halloween. Days passed as police were able to find the man on the surveillance camera, who purchased the tarp and large garbage bags, and they realized a few strange things. The man seemed to be calm. He had bought a turkey sandwich and a clearance t-shirt. They watched the man go back to his car. It was a Toyota Yaris. From there, they identified all owners of this make, model, and year within the Mount Vernon area, and what do you have it? They identify one of them to be Matthew Hoffman. His driver's license photo looked a heck of a lot like the man on the Walmart cameras. When they got the name, the patrol officer who had taken down the information from the mail, who was parked at the canoe launch site, he realized he was the same man they were looking for. He realized that he stopped Matthew Hoffman in the canoe parking lot. Immediately, they knew they had their guy. They located his address, and they knew where he was, and they were coming for him. On the morning of November 14th, the police team made their way to Hoffman's residence. They smoked out the house, and with a no-knock search warrant, they stormed through the home. They found a sleepy Hoffman laying on the couch. They arrested him. They could not help but be perplexed by the amount of leaves in the home. They feared that bodies would be found beneath the leaves. They searched throughout the house, and a sewing cabinet had been blocking the basement door. They moved it, and they headed downstairs. There they found missing Sarah Maynard. She was on a bed of leaves. She had urinated herself and had stained her jeans down to the leg. Sarah was taken out of the basement and brought to, the, to safety and freedom. Sarah was so disconnected from what happened that her first words were, I'm going to be late for school. I need to get to school. She was worried about missing so many days. She also asked if her dog was okay. Sarah didn't know that her mother, brother, and a family friend had met awful ends. Her first few words were such an innocent concern to have to have after being captive for four days. It truly shatters my heart that this girl had to come face to face with something worse than Matthew Hoffman, and that was the death of her family. Matthew was taken to the sheriff's office where he was interrogated. He said nothing for hours. He would not speak up. It wasn't until the next day that he came forward to an FBI agent investigating the case. Hoffman had made the agent go with him into the bathroom to assure that he was not being recorded. He explained that he had a horrible dream the night before, and he was in a meat processing factory, and there were garbage bags. He opened the bags, and there were body parts in them. This dream encouraged him to tell the agent where he hid the bodies. However, the agent had to make a deal. Hoffman would bring them to the bodies, he would attempt to run away, and the agent would shoot him dead. He did not want to live in prison for the rest of his life. The agent told him that he obviously couldn't do that. 
Hoffman then retracted what he said and would not confess to where the bodies were. Soon after, he told the officers that he would tell them where the bodies were as long as he did not get the death sentence. Author authorities talked this over with the families of Tina, Cody, Sarah, and Stephanie. They all agreed to this condition because they wanted to know where their loved ones were. They told Hoffman that the family had been okay with this as long as he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. The agreement was made. Hoffman took them to where he hid the bodies. Where he chose to hide the bodies is extremely disturbing. As I mentioned earlier, Matthew had been a tree trimmer. We also know how apparent his love for trees was. So where else better to hide the bodies than inside of a tree? He worked in a nearby county park at one point, and he knew of a hollow tree. The night he disposed of the bodies, he had brought his tree trimming equipment with him. While there, he created a pulley system and disposed of the bodies within the tree. This tree had to be cut into in order for the authorities to retrieve the remains. When the bags were taken out, they had to be opened, and the first bag to be opened was full of Cody's dismembered body. A pale 11-year-old's face stared back at the officers. This was truly a heinous and despicable crime. I have full body chills just even reading this back to you. No one deserves this. Cody deserved to be warm at home, and so did Tina, Stephanie, and the family dog. Sarah deserved to embrace her mom and brother with a warming hug. She deserved to cuddle her warm lively dog. Unfortunately, life doesn't always pan out the way that it should. Officers and agents who are a part of this case will be scarred for the rest of their lives. In fact, the lead investigator was so affected by this, he later would take his own life. Sarah was reuni reunited with her father, Larry. They hugged each other and cried together for a very long time. Sarah would move in with her father, her stepmother, and stepbrother. Even though Sarah was free, she would not escape the darkness that Hoffman inflicted on her life. Matthew pled guilty to his crimes. Sarah did not have to see him in court or testify against him. However, her attorney did read a letter out loud to him and the courtroom. And just like the photos I've mentioned, I've also posted this letter that she had read out loud to him and the court onto my Instagram, so if you're interested, you could definitely find it there. Hoffman currently remains withering away in Toledo Prison. As for Sarah Maynard, she's a survivor. She was smart and remained calm to stay alive. Her bravery is unprecedented. My podcast goes over true crime stories, but the most important part of these stories are the victims, the survivors, and the brave warriors. They're the story, not, not their monster the monster, the perpetrator, they're not important. It's the victims. It's the survivors. It's the warriors. Sarah does her best to carry on with her life, ejecting Hoffman far away from it. She was recently in a show dedicated to survivor Jamie Kloss. It's called Smart Justice, the Jamie Kloss case. Elizabeth Smart, a kidnapping survivor, brings together women who have survived their kidnappers. In the special, they give advice to Jamie Kloss. Just like Sarah, Jamie was abducted and held captive at 13 years old. Jamie's parents were both killed by her captor. These women share their stories and empower one another. The show, the show gives an understanding of what happens to these survivors after they are rescued. It's truly remarkable. They are such brave ind individuals. Definitely take a look. You can rent it from Amazon. I'll leave you guys the link in the show notes in case you're interested.
I got much of my information from the book The Girl in the Leaves, written by Robert Scott, Sarah Maynard, and Larry Maynard. This book is great because Sarah and Larry experienced everything. Robert Scott helped put their experience into words. So if you're looking for a deeper dive into this case, I would highly recommend you check it out. It was a great true crime read, and I actually read it twice. I'll leave the link to Barnes & Noble if you're interested in purchasing the book. Well, guys, that's the conclusion to episode one of Crime Ghoul. Let me know what you guys think, and if you have any cases you'd like to hear, definitely don't be afraid to share. You can follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform where you listen to your podcasts. If you would like to see pictures that go hand-in-hand hand with the case, or if you want to stay updated on all things Crime Ghoul, check me out on Insta, Facebook, and Twitter at crimeghoul underscore. Until next time, folks, stay spooky, and thank you so much for listening. Thank <laughs> you.